I was standing on the floor the last couple of weeks on that. I, I love being down on the floor, but standing on concrete for three, three services was a little taxing. And so they put this here for me today. <laughs> I suspect Dean was probably behind that. Or Andrew. We began this journey um, through the life of Joseph some three months ago. My hope was to give you encouragement, something to hold on to in the midst of life's challenges and, and loss, loss of a job, loss of a home, loss of a friend, um, loss of a marriage, loss of health, loss of life, perhaps even loss of hope. And so this morning, we find ourselves at the end of the story, facing two more losses, in, in, in the death of Jacob and in the death of Joseph. And with those, we will close the last chapter of the story of Joseph, and incidentally, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. My question is, how will we close them? Yeah, yeah I, I know. We've read the story um, before, but, but how will we close them? You see, the book of Genesis begins with God's beautiful creation. Life all around. Even God Himself exclaimed, it is very good. And then the story of humanity began and suddenly it wasn't very good. By the end of the book, we're left in a coffin in Egypt, not unlike life. It begins with lots of promise and hope, then faces trials and suffering, sometimes life-shattering events, then ends up in a coffin. Seldom goes the way we think it ought to go. And so, do we close the chapter, this chapter, this book, uh, this story, and our stories with the death of a promise and, and the death of hope, or do we close them with a renewed sense of certain hope, an understanding of who God is and the great lengths to which He will go to fulfill His grand and glorious promises to His people? You see, I am fully aware that there's a sense in which Joseph's story ha had a silver lining. <laughs> Sure, we studied through 13 years of misery, but then it ended. Then came deliverance, promotion, wealth, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, reunion. Joseph's life had a storybook ending, and they lived happily ever after. And some of you are facing the fact that your dreams and plans have been inexplicably and unalterably shattered. There will be no knight in shining armor, no promotion to prime minister, no family reunion, no recovery of health, no restoration to life. So what now? You see, here's the truth. Every time you face a death, expected or unexpected, death of a dream, death of a life, someone close to you, a believer whom you've spent more than three months with, you're faced with a decision. As you close the lid on the coffin, what does that speak to you? 
Does it bring despair or hope? Is that it? The last chapter of a life forever closed? Or does it point to a certain hope of a new book yet to be opened, a new chapter yet to be read? You have a decision to make every time you face death, even yours. Some of the challenges of our Christian community and, frankly, of this church have resulted in great, unexpected, life-altering loss. Some of you have faced the loss of health, uh, leading to potential loss of life. Some of you have lost the life of someone very close to you. As you closed the lid, or perhaps are about to close the lid, in the not-too-distant future, what will that speak to your soul? What will this action do for you? Turn to Genesis chapter 49. Over the past couple of weeks, we saw Jacob as he faced his own pending death, as he got ready to close the lid on his own coffin. He, he did some things that got him in the hall of faith, that, that list of great people of the faith in, in Hebrews 11. And the, the, the first was the end of uh, chapter 47. He had his favorite son, Joseph, swear to him by an oath that when he died, Joseph would take him to Canaan, the land of promise, and bury him there. He said, please don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the land God promised to grandpa and to dad and to me. Yes, I know that the only thing that we own at this point in the land is a field and a cave, which is a family cemetery. But I believe God promised and we read that after Joseph took the oath, Joseph bowed his head in the bed and worshiped. Why was this important enough to record in Hebrews 11? Because by such an act, he showed that he went to the grave believing the promises of God. He believed that Egypt was not his home, that God would one day return the family to the land he had promised. Jacob went to the grave believing the promises of God. He worshiped even though he never saw the promises fulfilled. He closed the lid on his own coffin with the hope that God is a promise-keeping God. He can be trusted. Even though life is hard, even though years of my life have been few and unpleasant, God is still good and God is still sovereign. Not only that, that verse in Hebrews uh, commending Jacob's end of life Faith says that he blessed Joseph's sons. We saw that last week. On his deathbed, he called for Joseph to come to see him. Joseph made the trek from the capital city, brought uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob took a purposeful trip down memory lane, reminding Joseph of God's promises. Then he adopted Manasseh and Ephraim to be his own. He blessed them, calling on the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, to be their God, to bless the boys in the land of promise as heads of tribes. Once again, at the end of his life, Jacob believed the promises of God. It brings us to chapter 49. We're not going to look at the first 27 verses. I'd kill you if we did. But, but in summary, you look at verse 1 of chapter 49. We read that Jacob summoned his, his 12 sons to bless them, to speak prophetically of them and their respective tribes in the days to come. 
You see, this was another act of great faith. Having done so, he's finished. He's, he's done. The last chapter of this life is over. Make no mistake about it. He understands his life was not over. Neither is yours when they close the lid on the coffin. The promises of God to you will be met. So today we're going to look at Jacob's homegoing, his death and burial in the land of promise, or we're going to look at Joseph's death. Oddly enough, we're going to see in this in these verses the the thing that got Joseph in the hall of faith. It's rather striking. Of all of the things that could be recorded rightly about him, the thing that got him in Hebrews 11 was his faith when they closed the lid of his coffin. In the midst of these two faithful death accounts, we will be reminded of some important truths, that in the midst of the challenges and loss of life, God is still good, God is still sovereign, and God can always be trusted. And so for now, let's read the end of chapter 49 to see Jacob's death, starting at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, uh, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. As I said a moment ago, G Jacob blessed his 12 sons with a blessing that was appropriate to them, uh, prophetic significance, uh, many ways describing the future character of the tribes. Having finished, Jacob says to them, verse 29, I am about to be gathered to my people. Interesting statement. I suppose he could be saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to join my fathers in death and just go the way of all the earth. We would expect that from pessimist um, Jacob. But there are two challenges with that idea. First, he, he goes on to give instructions about being physically gathered to his people, about his physical death. He says, go ahead and bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Machpelah. It's in the land of Canaan. It's the only piece of property at this point in history. It's the only thing that we hold a title deed to. There, Abraham and Sarah were buried. Isaac and Rebekah were buried. There, I buried Leah. He says, I'm about to be gathered to my people, then gives instructions about physical burial in Canaan. You see, I believe and most believe that he's speaking of two different things here, being spiritually gathered to his people and physically laid to rest with his fathers. Now I have further support. We remember uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 and 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, now notice, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles where? On the earth. 
They understood that something better was coming. Yes, you might close the lid on my coffin, but when you do, I will be gathered to my people where where they have gone to a heavenly country, verse 16 says, to a city that God has prepared for them. This was a statement from pessimist Jacob of, of great expectation and hope. Yeah, I'm in Egypt. No, I've not received the promises. Yes, I'm about to die. You'll bury me in a little plot of land that we own in Canaan. But, but know this, when you close the lid of the coffin, know that I will have already been gathered to my people. Every time you see you close the lid on a coffin, you have a decision to make. Is that it? Or is there another chapter, another book, indeed another story yet to be read? Franz Borkenau was a communist author, interestingly, who suggested that cultures can be characterized by their attitudes toward death. For example, he said, the Greeks had a death-accepting attitude. Nothing we can do about it. Reason does not allow for fear of death. Might as well just accept it. Modern society, he said, has a death-denying attitude. He says we come up with all kinds of ways to suppress it, to ignore it, to not deal with it. For example, we say that people have passed away or passed on. We might say that they're deceased. Medical community says that they've terminated or expired. We've come up with euphemisms like um, they bit it, they kicked the bucket, they um, bit the dust, their history, they're six feet under, they're pushing up daisies. Modern society, see, does not want to talk about death, anything but death. It's interesting to note that we buy life insurance. If there has ever been a misnomer, it's that. It is not life insurance, it is death insurance. But who would buy that? A death-denying a death-denying attitude, death-accepting attitude, a death-denying attitude. But oddly enough, this communist author observed that Jews and Christians have a death-defying attitude. That's what I'm talking about when I say you have a decision to make. Death-defying. It's not the end. Something better awaits. We can actually say like Paul, listen, I'm kind of struggling with a decision. I got, a, I got a problem. Whether to remain here on earth, which is better for you, or to depart and be with Christ, which is a whole lot better. That's death defying. This is the way of Christ. By the way, after giving these instructions, Jacob drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last. That's a great way to speak of death. Breathe his last. And notice, was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people when he breathed his last. You see, he hasn't been buried yet. Right. So this being gathered to his people and being laid to rest are two different things. Something more awaits. Another chapter. Another book. Another life to be lived. My brothers and sisters, if we do not believe that... If we just check a 
you know, punch a time clock on Sunday mornings because Christianity is just kind of okay and we get some fun and fellowship and friends here. If we believe that this is all there is, it is no wonder that we can become discouraged with the challenges of life and even death. Brings us to our second point, Jacob's burial, which we read about in chapter 50, verses 1 to 14. Look at that with me. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then, then I will return." Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all of the elders of the land of Egypt. And all of the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, that's interesting, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning, that's Joseph, for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is grievous mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan." Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, that's the land of promise, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Joseph, Jacob dies, Joseph directs the physicians to embalm his father. That's very interesting. There's two different classes of people, physicians and embalmers. He didn't ask the embalmers because of the pagan rites associated with that. He got the, the uh, physicians to do it. It took 40 days um, to embalm him, which was about right for the period. By the way, there is lots of historical accuracy in this account. We read the Egyptians mourned for Jacob for 70 days. That included that 40 days of embalming. Also interesting, they mourned for the father, the Egyptians mourned for the father of the man who saved them, and history tells us that the official time of, uh, of mourning for Pharaoh at this time was 72 days, so they stopped at 70. He's great, not quite as great as Pharaoh, they just didn't get it. When the 70 days of mourning were over... G, uh, Joseph sent word to Pharaoh to ask permission to go to Canaan to bury dad. Also, right after morning, he would have been unshaven, unadorned. So he sent word to Pharaoh. He, he deliberate, notice how he delicately deals with this issue. He doesn't say, dad made me promise, don't bury me in the land of Egypt. That would have been offensive to Pharaoh. 
All he did was point out our family cemetery is there. Let me go and bury him and I will return. That's interesting. You see, it hasn't been 400 years yet. They haven't been made into a great nation yet. So after mourning for 70 days, they go to bury him. It takes a few more weeks of mourning. All told, I find this very interesting, it takes a few months. We're not careful, we just kind of skip right over that. Took a few months. And we look at that and we don't think of Joseph as mentally disturbed or psychologically and emotionally weak. Do we? And yet in our culture, we give someone a few weeks to get over it. If someone were to mourn for three or four months, come on. Time to snap out of it. I'm not suggesting here that the Bible is giving deliberate instructions about how to mourn. I am suggesting that it gives us permission to mourn a little bit longer than our culture allows. I also find it interesting that they mourned even though he was gathered to his people. It's appropriate to mourn the loss of a loved one. Because you see, the last enemy to be destroyed, enemy is death. Read, there was a large company of people who went on the funeral procession. There were actually three groups that made up this procession. All of the elders of Pharaoh's household uh, of the land. This was the nobility of Egypt. Then came the family minus their little ones and their flocks and their herds. Um, it was, wasn't time to move. And next came a large army of chariots and horsemen. You see, they were leaving Egypt, and, and Pharaoh sent a military contingent as an escort. It's interesting, though, several point out that this is kind of a dress rehearsal for the exodus that will come in 400 years. It's eerily similar. This time, um, it's most of the family of Jacob. Next time, it'll be all of the family of Jacob. This time, they carry the embalmed body of Jacob. Next time, they will carry the embalmed body of Joseph. This time, the Egyptian army escorts them. Next time, the Egyptian army will chase them out. For some reason, probably for safety purposes, they traveled to the east side of the Jordan first, that's much like the Exodus, where they held a, another seven-day period of mourning at this threshing floor of Atad. So great was their mourning that it becomes known as Abel Mizraim, which means something like uh, the mourning of the Egyptians. Brings us to our third point. Jacob is now in the ground, and we arrive at the brother's Fear. Fear of what? Fear of retribution in verses 15 to 21. And this contains some very important truth as we face the difficulties of life, especially if those difficulties come at the hands of others. Look at it with me. Verse 15. When, Joseph, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You need to write that verse on your mirror. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Jacob's dead and gone. Reality hits them. What if Joseph, you know, the prime minister with all the power, holds a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him? That would be the natural course of things, right? That's how most respond to wrongdoing, pay back in full. Actually, we say payback is double. And don't miss, Joseph had both the power to ex- execute vengeance and what most, I would suggest, would say is the right to execute vengeance. Who wouldn't in his shoes? So the brothers decide to head things off at the pass. They send a messenger to Jacob. Well, he's not named. Who do you think he sent? They sent. Uh, Benjamin. And the messenger says, Dad told us to tell you to play nice. He, he, he begged for you to forgive the transgressions of your brothers for their sin, for they did wrong. Stop right there. Now, First question I have is, why didn't Jacob just tell Joseph this directly? I mean, he was at his deathbed several times. Why didn't he say that? Because the brothers were making this up. They're scared, rightly so. Most people execute vengeance. But notice, secondly, what they called their past actions against Joseph. Transgression, sin, and wrong. Many people point out this is the first time that the brothers fully own up to their past sin, calling it for what it was. Notice they say, please forgive, not your brothers, but the servants of the God of your father. I mean, they are pulling out every ace they have. Dad asked you to forgive the servants of the same God, and he's the God of your father. They're pouring it on thick. And we read that Joseph wept. Why does he weep? Well, who knows? Possibly because of, uh, of their fear. Possibly because of their repentance. Because, possibly because of the reminder of this past sin. Who knows? We, 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 but when he, re- when he wept, we read that the brothers, who were probably right outside the doors, came in and fell. Not bowed but fell on the floor before him and said, we are your servants. This is probably the ultimate fulfillment of the dreams in Genesis 37. You see, before, when they, ne- when they bowed in his presence, it was before the prime minister. This time, it was before their brother, and they knew it. And Joseph tells them, don't fear. And he gives them three assurances as to why they need not fear, which teach us. Now listen, this is very important. Three very important principles for living our life today. Three, write these down. First, Joseph asks them, am I in the place of God? In other words, he understood the principle that vengeance was not his prerogative. Vengeance belongs to to God. It is not, it is never our right to pay people back for the wrong that they have done us. I didn't say anything about consequences. I said to pay people back 
for the wrong that they have committed against us is never our right. We live in a society which, that believes that payback is not only right, but righteous. Most of the movies that, frankly, I like to watch have to do with vengeance. It's not right, and it's not righteous. Jesus himself left us this example, you see. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, for doing what is right, you patiently endure it, you put up with it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. What's the example? Well, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When wronged, we are not in the place of God. We must follow the example of Christ and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Paul said it this way in Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. There's a little uh, uh, encouragement for you. You don't do the payback. Let God do it. He's better at it. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We must allow God to right all wrongs. This is what Joseph said. Second, Joseph gives that very well-known line, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The principle is our sovereign God is able to take the evil perpetrated against us, sinful actions, and turn it to good. God's providence overrides evil. Here, Joseph's mistreatment was for God's ultimate uh, good, namely the saving of many lives. Now, I don't want you to miss something here. I don't want you to miss the fact that what the brothers did was, in fact, evil. It was sinful. It was wrong. It was an action for which they were accountable and they, 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 from which they needed to repent. It was an action that, that Joseph needed to forgive. But God, in His sovereign goodness, turned it to good. Somehow, God is able to take the evil and uh, perpetrate it against us and use it for our good. I will... I will go even further to say that he permits evil perpetrated against us to use it in his plan. That does not mean that God causes sin. It just means that evil can not only not thwart God's good and sovereign plan, but he is able to take that evil and use it for our good when others intended it for our bad. The most poignant example of that, of course, is God's own Son. Worst, most heinous sin ever perpetrated against any hum human being was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Talk about evil perpetrated against someone who was innocent, who didn't deserve it. It was evil, but it was part of God's plan to save many lives. Acts chapter 2, men of Israel... 
Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He proved himself to be who he claimed to be, my very son. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless. See, this is evil, godless men, and put him to death. It was evil. But it was according to God's plan. Acts chapter 4, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your um, purpose predestined to occur. Listen, the death of Jesus Christ was evil, all according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God for the redemption of humankind. If God can do that, God is able to take the evil in your life, sin committed against you, and turn it to good for His glorious purposes. And by the way, I want to suggest that Joseph's understanding of God's sovereign goodness enabled him to forgive his brothers. Third, and I'm going to finish with this. We won't get to the last point. You can read about Joseph dying. I mean, to the last point, fourth point. Third thing, third principle is seen in this statement. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. First principle, don't repay evil with evil. Vengeance belongs to God. Second principle, God is able to take evil done against you and use it for His good. Third principle, don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. Golly, that's a little harder. Okay, I cannot pay someone back, but to pay them back with good? While they thought Joseph would take sweet revenge, he repaid their evil with kindness. He took care of them. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never take your own revenge. Verse 21 goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul said further in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another and for all people. That's Christian. Again, we're not going to look at the fourth point. Joseph dies. You can read the last few verses of the book. So, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and make their way to the front. As we leave the story of Joseph, we leave him in a coffin in Egypt. Here's my question. What about the coffins that we've closed? What about those people you've buried What about your pending death? Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's already been dealt with, but we still die because we live in the tension of the already but not quite yet. Christ, through His resurrection, has ultimately defeated sin and death. As I read this week, death and sin and sickness and disease and sorrow met its ruin at the cross. But until Christ returns, we still face those things. Yes, Christ has already risen from the dead, but death still reigns. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. And we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. 
So the next time, the next time you close the lid on the coffin, on a coffin, perhaps you are facing your own pending death, what will this speak to you? What will you say to death? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer. And Father, we, we believe these truths. Would you make them most precious to us in times of trouble, in times of loss, in times of sorrow, in times of death? Would you help it not to be a time to despair, but a time to cast ourselves at your feet and to find you speak encouraging words to us, words of hope? This is not all there is. You will win. You've already done it at the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.